Hello and welcome to another episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nick Galletti. On this episode, we are moving on in our Basic Doctrine series to the priesthood. The Basic Doctrine of the Priesthood. Now that's a bit of an ironic title because the priesthood itself, it can be a little complicated. There's a lot that's been said about it throughout the years, and there's a lot that will probably continue to be said about it. Here now is what is on the church's official website for priesthood and priesthood keys. The priesthood is the eternal power and authority of God. Through the priesthood, God created and governs the heavens and the earth. Through his power, he redeems and exalts his children, bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. God gives priesthood authority to worthy male members of the church so they can act in his name for the salvation of his children. The keys of the priesthood are the rights of presidency, or the power given to man by God to govern and direct the kingdom of God on the earth. Through these keys, priesthood leaders can be authorized to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances of salvation. All who serve in the church are called under the direction of one who holds priesthood keys. Thus, they are entitled to the power needed to serve and fulfill the responsibilities of their callings. The Aaronic Priesthood is often called the Preparatory Priesthood. The offices of the Aaronic Priesthood are deacon, teacher, priest, and bishop. In the Church today, worthy male members may receive the Aaronic Priesthood beginning at age 12. Please note, this has been changed to beginning the year they turn 12. The Aaronic Priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels and the gospel of repentance and of baptism. The Melchizedek Priesthood is the higher or greater priesthood and administers in spiritual things. This greater priesthood was given to Adam and has been on the earth whenever the Lord has revealed his gospel. It was first called the Holy Priesthood after the order of the Son of God. It later became known as the Melchizedek Priesthood, named after a great high priest who lived during the time of the prophet Abraham. Within the Melchizedek Priesthood are the offices of Elder, High Priest, Patriarch, Seventy, and Apostle. The President of the Melchizedek Priesthood is the president of the church. There have been a number of books that have come out recently. This book that we're going to talk about today with our guest is called The Power of Godliness, written by Jonathan A. Stapley. There have been other books that have come out, including one by Elder Renlund and his wife in the Melchizedek Priesthood. I would highly recommend these books as a study of what the priesthood is to come to some understanding that the priesthood today is spoken of in many different ways. And it's important to understand that the true doctrine, the eternal doctrine that has been taught, will always continue to be taught, and is pertinent to our salvation, is that the priesthood is the power of God. It is the power of God to help exalt man. It is necessary to our salvation. It has been in existence and has been granted to man at various dispensations and times throughout the world to administer his gospel here on the earth. What goes beyond that? is up for our discussion. And here to discuss it with us is our guest, Jonathan A. Stapley. Jonathan received his PhD from Purdue University and has been active in the field of Mormon history for over a decade. He has written in blogs, he has published many books, and his latest book was published by Oxford University Press, again called The Power of Godliness, Mormon Liturgy and Cosmology. And we wanna thank him for coming on. So here now is my interview with Jonathan Stapley. 
Our guest on this episode is Dr. Jonathan A. Stapley, who is the author of a book that caught my attention a while back called The Power of Godliness, Mormon Liturgy and Cosmology. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are joining us from uh, Washington, right? That's where you live now. Washington State, yes, just outside of Seattle. Excellent. Love it up there. Beautiful. Probably be fair to say that you're, you're a historian as a hobby. Is that fair? Or do you, do you make a living as a historian too? No, I'm a chemist. I have a PhD in chemistry. And I started a company that is industrializing my graduate research. Okay. But I also um, research and write in Mormon history and have done so for um, well over a decade. Yeah. And, and so you, you do come to this subject of the doctrine of the priesthood as is taught in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with kind of a historian's lens for the most part. Um, you are a member of the church. Did you, did you happen to serve a mission just out of curiosity? Yeah, for sure. I served in the Belgium-Brussels mission. Fantastic. So you spoke French? In the French? mid to late 90s. Yep, speaking French. Excellent. This particular book speaks about the history of priesthood in a couple different frames of reference. And w- even the subtitle uses a term, liturgy, that is uncommon to a Latter-day Saint discussion of the priesthood. So we'll get to that. But can you tell us in your own words what you feel the doctrine of the priesthood is? Ooh. So um, first of all, it's important to recognize that um, Latter-day Saints use a vocabulary that is particular to ourselves. And so that when we use words like priesthood and ordinance, um, they mean something to us that they don't mean to other people. Okay. And even words like doctrine are particular um, to ourselves. And so um, as a historian that writes for an academic audience typically— I am careful about how I define terms and the terms I use. So I generally don't use words like doctrine, but what I uh, in my work. But what I would say is what the Latter-day Saint understanding of priesthood is today is the power um, and authority of God, and particularly the power that God used to create the universe and the power that mediated the atonement. And that's the way that it's been defined for the last. 20 years in particular, um, but dating back to the early 20th century. Okay. And and how does that maybe differ from when Joseph Smith, you know, organized the church and how did he talk about priesthood in that time? Well, maybe it might be interesting to go back to even before Joseph Smith, because um, that's the context from which this arose. If listeners are missionaries and they're talking to people outside of our tradition, and this is an important concept, I often use uh, terms like neighborhood and motherhood as analogical terms to um, contextualize how other people use priesthood. So how do you become, how do you receive the neighborhood or how do you experience motherhood? (laughs) Okay. Um, And you uh, experience the neighborhood or you receive the neighborhood by becoming a neighbor, essentially buying a house and moving in and then you're part of the neighborhood and you become a mother by having a baby. And Consequently, outside of our tradition, you receive the priesthood by becoming a priest. Right. Um, and that's it. Um, it's, there's no kind of higher cosmology like we have today. So when Joseph Smith um, started the church, there were three or four offices, depending on um, which documents we use. But let's say there's four. 
there were deacons, teachers, priests, and elders of the church. And that's it. That, there were no other offices, no other callings, no presidencies, quorums, councils. That was it. And then over a period of about five years, um, Joseph Smith revealed subsequent offices and organizations and concepts that took us more to a place where we are today. Not quite where we are today, but more towards that. So, for example, we often talk about how the priesthood was restored. And we talk about John the Baptist restoring the Aaronic priesthood and Peter, James, and John restoring the Melchizedek priesthood. Right. And, you know, a great place for the um, listeners to turn to is on the church's website associated with saints are dozens of essays, topical essays, church history essays, um, related to many concepts, but in particular to the restoration, they have essays on the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood and the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood that are great. And what they'll find there, and which is quite evident to historians, is that the terms and the idea of an Aaronic priesthood and a Melchizedek priesthood were not revealed by Joseph Smith until 1835. Okay. So five years after the church was started, that that's when the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood as ideas were revealed. Um, now, clearly... There were these miraculous beginnings to the church, conveyals of authority or conferrals of authority. And how the early Latter-day Saints understood um, what these offices in the church were and how they related to broader concepts of priesthood um, evolved rapidly during this period and really didn't quite get to where we are today until, I would say, um, just a few years ago. I mean, we're still having church leaders reveal concepts and modifying our understandings of these uh, concepts. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to bring out with respect to your book, The Power of Godliness, is you do go into a great deal of this history and and showing how these things have evolved over time. And again, I I brought up the word liturgy before. Let's throw that word out there because it's important to discussing how we view and have spoken about priesthood in the church. So what exactly is liturgy? Okay, so liturgy is a term that will be familiar to um, Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Jewish um, people. And basically, it's a category of actions. It's um, the rituals and ritualized acts that believers participate in to worship and to celebrate major life events and religious moments, either on a weekly basis or, um, you know, periodically in the life of the believer. So we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are accustomed to speaking of ordinances. Right. But that is a term that means something very different to the way we mean it outside of our tradition. And so let's take the baptism as as an example. There's a baptismal ritual that's described in our scriptures, in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants, but it's just a prayer. Okay. So how, how you know, if all you had was the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, um, you might perform a baptism um, or have a different liturgy than we do today. But today we have a whole set of ritualized acts that um, surround this prayer and guide believers' participation in the services. So, the current baptismal liturgy today constitutes the clothes we wear, the prayers we say, how we hold our hands, 
um, the talks that are given, and perhaps even the refreshments that are served. <laughs> so it's it's not just the words that are spoken, but it's the the surrounding events. The the almost we might say the culture is part of it, and that's what makes up liturgy. It's part of that ceremony. It's part of our religious culture. Is that right? Um, yeah, and uh, different observers might uh, categorize things differently. So, for example, most of the time today when church members baptize uh, either young people or adults, they will dress in white. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that a cultural requirement or is it, a, uh, as you said, a doctrinal t- requirement or a, a requirement based on teachings of the gospel, restored gospel? That's a good question. I would I would argue that that the symbolism of of baptism, the the baptism itself, wasn't performed the same way during Christ's time, or or even you know earlier on in the church. And so there are these things, these aspects of things that we would say are not cultural, but they're not exactly doctrinal because that hasn't always been that way. Um, depending on how you even again use the word doctrine. So yeah, there's different parts of these things that that we that we perform that don't feel that they easily fit into one or the other, as far as I see it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer <laughs> um, for that particular question. Um, what I would say is that believers, are the, the members of the church and church leaders, developed the liturgies of the church by living it. So the Joseph Smith didn't receive the general handbook of instructions. It was 600 pages long that told us how to do everything. He received a prayer. And then um, over time, he, with other church leaders and church members, baptized and learned from each other how to perform it and um, what acts required an extra measure of meaning or effort. And it evolved to where we are today. Yeah. And this is the interesting part that I found when, again, when we talk about the word priesthood, we, we have so many different applications of that, regardless of our external, outside of the church kind of discussions. Even within the church, we use that word in different ways. What we've been talking about feels very ecclesiastical, feels very how we administer the operations of the church. But when we started, we talked about the power of God to create and the, to do his work, and that seems like two different things, even though in many ways they are the exact same thing. So how how do we how are these two things so distinct, and yet how do they go together? Is that too complex a question to ask? Maybe that's too complex. Um, you know, it's a difficult question. Um, I would say there are different ways to approach it. And um, so, for as an as an historian, I can document the rise of these ideas of associating priesthood with the power of God um, and when they entered church discourse. Um, It's important to note that the church was restored at a time when most Christians in America adhered to an idea called um, cessationism. And this is the uh, Protestant idea that the days of the miracles ceased with the completion of the Bible. Right. And that there were no miracles, um, God did not intercede. And the Book of Mormon is a radical descent from secessionism. It's, it's essentially an anti-cessationist creed um, and condemns the world for these ideas. And 
it is the power of God is repeated multiple times. It's a concept that appears in the Book of Mormon repeatedly. Yeah. And it is distinct from any concepts of priesthood. And Joseph Smith sought to fill church members with the power of God as part of that. No, we live in a day of miracles. We expect to see God's hand in our life. The gifts of the Spirit. They're right. They're going to live out the exhortations of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants, and every church member can have access to God. Um, And so he's created ecclesiastical structures um, and liturgical structures. So ecclesiastical meaning creating church callings and liturgical structures like the temple ceremonies to channel the power of God into the lives of the Latter-day Saints. Now with time, the association of the power of God with the priesthood became inseparable essentially for modern leaders in so much that their definitions became conflated. Right. So in the early 20th century, that's when this idea that priesthood, we redefine priesthood as the power of God, not something that channels the power of God, but actually is the power of God. And that's essentially what happens at the early 20th century. And in reality, church leaders spent the century trying to figure out uh, how to incorporate women into these con- new conceptions of priesthood. Because in the early church, um, if the priesthood was just one way to channel the power of God, um, women could experience this power liturgically or even ecclesiastically without being ordained to a priesthood office. So it wasn't a, a big question about whether or not women could experience the power of God. But in the 20th century, when the definitions have changed, the question was, if women don't have the priesthood or priesthood office, can they experience the power of God? And there are examples of church leaders in the mid-20th century um, in general conference stating unequivocally that women should not, um, cannot and should not ever pretend to access priesthood power. Um, Obviously, that has changed, and, and quite dramatically so. Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard, the presidencies of the Relief Society have all worked and changed, I would even say revealed, uh, new concepts of the integration of women into the priesthood power and authority structures of the church. Yeah. So when we, again, if you're, if you're a missionary out in the field, and part of the discussions that we have uh, with, with non-members and, and people that are exploring what the church teaches, the question of priesthood comes up, and typically we do give this answer of the priesthood is the power of God given to, delegated to man to, to do his work and to administer his ordinances. And again, these are things that we, we need to make sure that we define a little further to give some understanding of what we mean by that. But even as teachers of the priesthood, uh, concepts, we need to have some definite understanding here of what we're even talking about. So we we have Elder Oaks at one point saying priesthood is not equal to the men. We don't speak of the Relief Society and the priesthood as if we are speaking of two genders. And we have, I would argue that there's a lot of defining trying to be taking place amongst the apostles right now to give us a clearer understanding of what the priesthood is. Have you seen over the history of the church, as I know you've done quite a bit of studying on this, have you get gotten a sense of, has there been a time where 
there's been more confusion about what the priesthood is or more clarity about what the priesthood is as it comes from church leaders? I think church leaders are generally confident in um, their conceptions of priesthood. I think where the challenge has always been is in the lived experience of our members and how do we incorporate the entire church into our conceptions of priesthood. Okay. And so that's where the, the, the challenge I think has been not only, you know, in recent memory, but throughout history. I would say, um, you know, going, I appreciate the work that um, President Oaks is doing, but it is a, it, it will be an ongoing challenge because the clear and understood definition of priesthood outside of the church is the group of priests. And if every member, um, every male member of the congregation is a priest, then people familiar with the normal English definitions of priesthood will slip into that usage. So um, he is asserting, President Oaks is calling church members to use a distinct restored, uh, a definition of the restored church. And it's, it's always going to be a challenge as long as the outside culture exists. So maybe even from the beginning of the church, there it's, it's not so much that the leaders themselves have been wavering or changing a great deal. Sure, there's been some evolutions. As we might say in the church, it's being restored a little bit at a time. But the lived experience, our, our lived understanding of what priesthood is and how it in, impacts our lives has certainly changed over time, and your book definitely kind of talks about that. So I'm curious, as we go through and, and try to gain a better understanding of priesthood, using the definition that it is the power of God delegated to man, as we've, we've hear, heard a lot, how do we see things like the temple and these ordinances, as we would call them in the church, how do we see those as distinct and unique ways but yet also find a way to connect them with people that we are speaking with outside of our faith. Is there a way to connect, say, our temple experiences or even our sacrament with those outside of our faith? How do we, how do we speak with them? How do we converse with them using similar terminology? That's an that's a excellent question. And if I may, I think it's worth taking a moment to talk about what ordinances are outside of our tradition. Yeah. So people are familiar with uh, Roman Catholicism. They'll be familiar with the term sacrament. And uh, a sacrament is a theological concept. It is an act that may or may not be performed, but typically is performed by a priest that conveys grace to the participant. And so whereas Protestants uh, rejected sacramentalism, they, they said that, look, it's not an act of the priest that conveys grace. It is Christ that conveys grace. And these sacraments are not necessary. Okay? So what happened is then America, being a hub or a center for Atlantic Protestantism, was generally anti-Catholic for the first, oh, the majority of its history. And as such... Terms like sacraments were generally frowned upon because it was a theology that Protestants rejected. So whereas the Catholic Church had several um, sacraments, including penance and anointing the dead, um, dying, 
Protestants looked at the Bible and said, well, we don't see any evidence for a formal ritual that conveys grace in the Bible, that those things. So we're going to eliminate all that. They went so far to say, look, even maybe baptism isn't required. So what did they have instead of sacrament? Well, this is where the term ordinance comes into the Christian lexicon. So an ordinance, people might be familiar with the idea of a municipal ordinance. Yeah, like a city ordinance. A city ordinance is a law of the city, okay? So an ordinance is a law, and Protestantism is kind of very legalistic. And so baptism, why are we baptized if you're Protestant? And it's because Jesus said to. So it's a law. And you could look at the Lord's Supper if you're a tradition that believes that that was an ordinance and that you would participate in that ordinance. So it's a law of the gospel, It wasn't because it conveyed anything that was any particular grace or didn't change, you know, the universe in any way. You do it because God said to. It's the law of the gospel. So, for example, John Wesley, who was the father of Methodism, talked about how every Methodist believer should participate in all the ordinances of the church, including uh, Bible reading, prayer, fasting, and participation in the Lord's Supper. And a Mormon might read that, or a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints might read that and think, well, those aren't ordinances. You know, reading the Bible isn't an ordinance. But if you take the standard definition of the term, that it's a law of the gospel, then clearly it is. Yeah. Early members of the church, they adopted that usage because they grew up in Protestant America. They use the term ordinance to describe the things that you're supposed to do, except that we have a sacramental theology um, in the church that we believe they actually do do a thing. That, they, that, that grace is conveyed in that thing as well, right? That's right. So when, when you're baptized, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, it's not just a thing that you, you do because you're told to do it. It actually does something. It changes the universe in important ways. And so... If a a missionary were to approach, uh, say, a Baptist and say, you know, you need to be baptized, you need to receive the ordinance of baptism, they would say, yeah, I've totally done that. Right. And when I was in the South where I served, we got that all the time. Ah, I've already been baptized. Right. But you have, no, you don't understand. You have to receive the ordinance of baptism by authority. And that's like saying you have to receive the law of baptism. And if you're a Baptist, you totally have received the law of baptism. Right. Right? Like, it's a word that doesn't mean what we think it means to other people. And so, we have to understand, our people have to understand that when we talk about ordinances, whether it's temple or blessing a baby, it's a term that doesn't mean what we think it means to other people. Yeah. And so the the original question is how do we incorporate other people these ideas of the power of God? I think first recognizing that disparity between us and people outside of our tradition, that recognition is tremendously important. And then once we we can recognize that they understand words differently, we can approach them with that empathy and say, look, baptism isn't just something we do because we're told to do it. Baptism actually does something. And, and the question is, why does it do something? Right. Why does, it, why does baptism do something? Why does taking the Lord's Supper and eating it do anything? And that's when we can, I think, begin to really 
enrich the lives of the people we're talking to and center the ritual, not only in terms of priesthood, but also in terms of the participant. Yeah. Well, there's there's really quite a bit that could still be drilled down further on some of these definitions, but for the sake of time, I think it's important that we maybe address some of these things that we would call folk doctrines, or things that we have sometimes assumed to be in line with what church leaders and, and we'll go ahead and say liturgy, uh, have taught us, but maybe aren't, and, and have somehow found a place in our modern-day practice of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what might be a couple of those things that might stand out as a myth doctrine or folklore kind of theology? Uh, Perhaps the most surprising thing for your listeners would probably be the idea that the partaking of the Lord's Supper, or the sacrament as we often call it, is a renewal of baptismal covenants. It's been said quite a bit. Um, It has. Perhaps surprisingly to many, um, Elder Anderson in some training associated with General Conference a couple of years back noted that, that while that has been said, it is not at all scriptural and that we shouldn't be limiting our understanding of the sacrament to that idea. Limiting it to just baptismal covenants, you mean? That limiting, the, the, I guess a, a more blunt way of saying is that partaking of the Lord's Supper is not a renewal of the baptismal covenant. Okay. It might be a renewal of covenants. Um, that's one way that church leaders have talked about it in general, but it's not a, a one-to-one connection to baptism. I, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. I, I wrote a book called Tree of Sacrament, and one of the assertions that I made in that book was, actually, there were a couple quotes that I gave from various apostles that either infer or come out and say directly that the renewal of all covenants could be considered part of our commitment to, as the words of the sacrament prayer say, to keep the commandments of God, where the covenants that we make are the commandments. And therefore, even if we're speaking of temple covenants, it could include that. But what you're offering here is that it's still not even limited to just covenants. Renewal of covenants is, is part of a package, a sacrament package. Is that what I'm hearing you say? I think that's fair. And I think it's a subject that people haven't spent a lot of time with. The Lord's Supper is a deeply meaningful experience for many people in the church. But it's worth considering, I think, why we have our children participate. Mm -hmm. I know of cases where families don't let their unbaptized children eat of the bread and drink of the water, and it makes me sad. Right. Yeah, I actually brought this up too. And in fact, one of the things that that was surprising to me was, was how the Handbook of Instructions actually does not condemn the practice, does not say don't do it or anything like that. Um, That's because would Jesus turn away children from his table? Because that's what the Lord's Supper is. There there are different ways of looking at it. Elder Holland recently talked about um, perceiving it through the sacrifice, uh, the Paschal lamb, right? That this, when Christ said that this is my blood and this is my flesh, he was referring to the sacrifice. And that certainly is one way to look at it. But also, it's also a meal with Jesus. And who would not welcome a child to that meal? So we've got the, the priesthood ordinance of the sacrament is not just for the renewal of baptismal covenants. That may be rolled into a much larger picture. That's correct, yep. What else? Um, so another one that might be interesting for, for people to think about 
And so, for example, in the, the church's uh, gospel topics essay on Joseph Smith's teachings about women, there was a large uh, section about women in the church participating in the healing liturgy of the church. Yes. And so that's the idea that um, historically women were able to anoint the sick and seal anointings and give blessings in the church. And that was, you know, the Relief Society handbook included instructions about that practice until 1968. Wow, I didn't know it was that late. Yeah. I knew that it had been practiced, but I didn't know that that's about the time that it kind of uh, became less official, I guess. Yeah, so it was, uh, I think, more and more rare after the um, World War II, but... I mean, the it made pr- the the handbook for Relief Society made provision for it until that late, um, and so I w- and again I think we need to be careful because currently the church's formal instruction is that only Melchizedek priesthood officers are to anoint with oil and heal the sick. Right. So that's the current instruction of the church, but I think it's worth um, appreciating at least and thinking about how every single church president up to Heber J. Grant, formally endorsed the practice of women blessing the sick. And perhaps our greatest healer in all of church history and our best documented healer was General Relief Society President Zina D.H. Young. Hmm. A topic for another time, perhaps. Yeah. So, so what else? What are some of the other common things that we may see or hear about priesthood in the church that uh, may not be so grounded? Well, I think there are tendencies to want priesthood officers to do things because, well, it could be for any number of reasons. So, for example, women did not pray in sacrament meeting uh, until 1978. And there were formal instructions barring women from praying in sacrament meeting. Hmm. Now, President Kimball got up in the leadership session of General Conference. Um, So this was when they had regional representatives and the apostles gather before the general sessions of conference. And he announced that they'd looked at the scriptures and they couldn't find any reason why women couldn't pray. And then opened it up to church members. But it wasn't, it was a policy that people didn't quite understand. And, and, you know, up until the mid 90s and early 2000s, there were people that thought um, maybe women couldn't give opening or closing prayers in sacrament meeting. And it wasn't until the 2010 general handbook that explicitly stated that both men and women could equally pray in sacrament meeting. And, and to kind of offer a parallel, while in general conference, there was never explicit rules that said women couldn't pray, I think probably because there's so many priesthood officers, general priesthood officers that never get to speak, that they often just had you know a, a member of the 70 pray as a way of participating in general conference that they wouldn't have otherwise. But the result was that women didn't pray in general conference until really quite recently in the last decade. And so um, I think it's worth considering um, whether it's something as something like prayer in church or as, you know, what sort of assignments we hand out as ward councils or what jobs female missionaries do and male missionaries do, it's worth considering, is this division that we are making, is it scriptural or is it something we are doing that is perhaps cultural or based on non-scriptural, I might even say sexism or non-scriptural cultural distinctions? 
that have um, influenced our tradition. Yeah. One of the things that I found to be very interesting about your book, The Power of Godliness, which for those of our listeners that would like to check it out, it is published by Oxford University Press and uh, is available and and Amazon and and various locations. But one of the things that I noticed about this book was a, a sense of what the priesthood is is being revealed line upon line and has been since this, the restoration of the church. You could argue even a little before that, as you said before, that there were concepts that started to spring up in, in various forms of reformation that allowed people to ask the questions, and then through asking those questions the priesthood can be revealed further. And one of the things that we are seeing in our church today is there are things that we claim are priesthood, and yet they aren't. So how is it that one can, is there a way that we can look to some standard and say, this is priesthood, and this is the power of God, this is his authority, versus this is some practice or policy that could still be inspired, but maybe is not necessarily something that we need to look to as as something to, to lay the foundation of faith upon? Wow, that's a difficult question. What I would say is that, like you mentioned, the church is being revealed line upon line, precept upon precept, and that the church today is different than it was 10 years ago. Um, it's different than it was 40 years ago. And the church 40 years ago was different than it was 40 years before that. Yeah. And I would assert that it will always be so. And it should, because we believe that the church is living. Um, it's not just true, it's true and living. Yeah. And living things have to change and be relevant for the times they live in. So with that, while saying that, I think that I think it's important to take the words and teachings of the living general authorities seriously. And I you know, it's it's difficult to say how can we make distinctions between what is I think what you're getting at, what's true and what's maybe not an eternal, you know, principle. What's what's just for now, and um, I don't know that there's any good way of knowing that without, you know, it will always be a subjective, personal matter. Okay. And so I don't think I can speak objectively to that, except to say that some of my greatest heroes in the Restoration have been people that were faithful to their covenants, sustained their leaders but also saw beyond the constraints of their time. Okay. And so you, you have folks like Darius Gray, Gray. Who, uh, who was a pioneering black member of the church and who was able to, I, I believe he, he was a prophet in the kind of technical sense. He wasn't ordained to the Council of the Twelve, but he has been a prophet for our people. And I think there are many people that have been able to fill that role. And I would hope that we all, you know, like Moses said, would that we all were prophets. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I guess I, I, we, we can, again, talk forever about this. Um, but the reality is, is that the one thing that we can say, even though there seems to be a, a varied history of how people have understood or talked about the priesthood, that one of the truths that Joseph Smith brought back is the importance of the priesthood, having that authority and that power in the lives of the saints as a way of bringing them back to our heavenly home. That this, this divine ascent concept was 
was something that he brought forward quite a bit in his teachings from the beginning. And that seems to be very consistent, at least from my reading of things, that this idea that it is a necessary thing to have priesthood, to have that power and authority in the lives of the saints as a way of bringing them unto God. Is that even a fair statement? I think absolutely it is. Like I said, the Latter-day Saint liturgies, even though, you know, we haven't always worn a white white clothing when we've baptized, baptism has always done something. Yeah. And um, the temple has always done something. And I would, to add what you say, you know, Joseph Smith, the this is something that I think is evident in the Gospel Topics essays on Joseph Smith teachings about um, women and the priesthood, is that... So we talk about connecting people together in the temple. Joseph Smith called that the priesthood. So ultimately, the plan of salvation that Joseph Smith fully elucidated in Nauvoo was that men and women were to become kings and queens, priests and priestesses to God. Yeah. And that it was the temple liturgy that made that real. It was the mechanism to make people into heaven. Yeah. The Zion, the, the the one people that would be unified in God's name. Absolutely. And and I, I find that to be beautiful. I find that to be powerful. And one of the things that I think I appreciated the most from reading your book is an understanding that Joseph Smith was a man that sought so deeply and so passionately to convey that message to the saints that the priesthood was the power of God, yes, but it was the power to unify us, to bring us together and to make us one collected family. And if that's that's the message that perhaps we should take away from what the priesthood is about, it is to join us as a as a one family under God. That's a beautiful summary, and it is exactly that that animates my personal faith in the Restoration. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on, and we'll put a link that uh, people can go to check out The Power of Godliness, Mormon Liturgy and Cosmology. Thank you again, Jonathan Stapley, for coming on and talking with us about this. Happy to do it. Thank you. I want to thank again our guest, Jonathan A. Stapley, author of the book, The Power of Godliness, Mormon Liturgy and Cosmology. Guys, this is a tough subject. I'm not going to lie. This is a tough subject because there's been such an evolution over time, how we speak about it. And so the challenge as missionaries is to be able to first come to an understanding ourselves of what the priesthood is. That way we can testify to it and its power in our lives to change us, to bring us unto God, and to bring us together. Because that's what the priesthood is about. That is the work and glory of God, is to bring together the family of man and to bring us to immortality and eternal life. So take that all in. Feel free to ask questions, send us questions. You can do that through our website, ldsmissioncast.com. We have other topics and talks, other guests that will talk about other doctrines of the church, and hopefully we can come to some solid understanding of how these things all play together, because they do. We can understand them each individually, but we really should start to understand them as one great whole, and how the priesthood is part of the plan of salvation, and how the priesthood is part of God and the Godhead, and so on. So there's so much more that we can talk about, but for the sake of keeping it short, that's this episode. Thanks again for listening to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. Please subscribe to us in iTunes, on Stitcher, or in Spotify. Talk to you soon on our next episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast.